If Reality Check Radio enriches your day in life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and the dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. You're listening to The Dialogue on Reality Check Radio with Diwa De Boer, where we explore politics, power, and culture. I'm joined by William McGimpsey, who is a public policy professional, lobbyist, and Twitter personality. He's been involved in the field of public policy in New Zealand for around 20 years, having worked for several government and non-government agencies. He created the Twitter account, The Zeitgeist, during the Ardern government in order to bring attention to that government's disregard for Kiwis' rights. He now posts under his own name. Hello, William, and welcome to the show. Yeah, good idea. Nice to be joining you. So your Twitter account is the subject of my first question, really. I saw you post as the zeitgeist over the last few years, and I always did wonder what you meant by that specifically. Was it something clever you picked out of a hat or you had uh, something a bit more subtle in mind? No, no. I mean, I'm just a a sort of uh, one of my hobbies is reading uh, philosophy and uh, Zeitgeist is a term used in uh, German philosophy um, by people like Hegel, I think, might have used the term, as well as Heidegger. And it just means something like the spirit of the times. And so all I really intended by using that name was to uh, give people an idea of what was going on using my Twitter account, because in my view, the mainstream media is a little bit biased and uh, people could do with uh, getting a different perspective. And so... My idea was to show people and give them an idea of the spirit of the times uh, from my perspective. And why did you decide to switch over from being an anonymous commentator to posting under your real name? What was the, the thought process that, that underwent went to that decision? Yeah, well, I'm still not sure whether it was a wise decision. Um, <laughs> uh, but the change of government had a lot to do with it. Um, so uh, I was very critical of the Ardern government, and I think uh, deservedly so. So really, I mean, I had uh, sort of iterations of my Twitter account for a while there, uh, but I never took it really seriously. But uh, under the Ardern government, I kept, became uh, quite concerned about what was going on with the COVID pandemic, the vaccine mandates, uh, became concerned what was going on with co-governance and uh, some of the problems uh, or the attempt to pass hate speech laws and some other problems that were happening with free speech. So I really wanted to use my Twitter account to bring attention to some of those problems. And is there any particular reason why free speech especially is something that's very important to you? Why did it stand out from uh, many of the other human rights? As you say in your Twitter, you are a human rights advocate uh, and so more broadly, what do you mean by these human rights? Where do they come from? And why is free speech one of the more important ones to you? Well, human rights are just moral norms, ideas of right and wrong, minimum standards that we should have. And, uh, you know, different cultures have different ideas of what those moral norms should be. But the, the difference between civilization and barbarism is that there should be some idea of uh, normative order. So, I mean, the human rights movement draws on, you know, a variety of different perspectives. It tries to get agreement between different cultures, between different religions, between different philosophical perspectives about what the basic standards of normative order should be. And these have been encoded into uh, international treaties that most countries have signed up to. 
including the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and um, there's many more. And it's also made its way into uh, domestic law in most countries now, I'd say. I don't know that for sure, but a, a lot of countries, New Zealand has human rights laws, the UK has human rights laws, most modern democracies would have some sort of human rights law. And free speech is uh, one of the most important ones. And I guess the reason that free speech is one of the most important ones is that you need to use free speech in order to defend the other rights. If you take free speech away, it's very difficult for people to bring attention to other human rights violations and also to organise and agitate to defend the rights that have been taken away. So in some ways, I mean, some people argue because of that, free speech is... Uh, the first among human rights. The right to life is obviously very important, but uh, free speech is also very important. Uh, it's the First Amendment to the US Constitution, so obviously they thought it was quite important. But yeah, apart from just a rights-based approach, it's, it's also important, I think, for the f- proper functioning of democracy. Democracy is based on the idea of consent of the governed, and uh, if people don't have free speech, it's very difficult for public opinion to, you know, Uh, move through ordinary conversation and debate over time towards a reasonable or towards um, some sort of consensus. The public opinion is reflected in people's voting decisions, which is then reflected in the laws that governments pass. And if there's some sort of systematic warp introduced into public opinion by banning certain types of conversations, that's going to have an effect on people's voting decisions and the policies that are passed. So, So that, in my mind at least, poses problems for the idea of consent of the government, uh, consent of the governed. And it sort of reverses the idea of um, who ought to be in charge, the people or the government. Is it the people who ought to be electing the government or is it the government banning conversations about certain topics so that uh, certain parts of the policy agenda can't be voted away? So it's important for democracy. Um, It's also just important for... um, uh, you know, individual self-expression uh, for being yourself. If you don't have free speech, you've, you always have to walk around on eggshells and be sort of guarded. You can never really say what you think. And, you know, that's just a sort of uncomfortable situation that people don't want to live out in their everyday life. Um, so those are a few reasons I think free speech are important. I've got a very topical example for you from the past uh, week or so. The Green Party is going to be electing a new co-leader at some point. One of the people standing for this role is Chloe Schwarbrick. Uh, now, she has been known as fairly vocal in terms of wanting hate speech laws and, and being fairly critical of hate speech. But she is in hot water over a chant that she led at a protest. And the chant is, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. And in interviews recently, she's argued that this is not anti-Semitic. It's not They're not using the term hate speech, but it's effectively what the argument is, that there's a Jewish community that's offended by this, that considers this to be hateful. And her argument is actually the same argument that you're making in that she wants to call out human rights violations that she she sees, and she wants to be able to use controversial speech to be able to call out what she sees as as an injustice. Uh, Yet at the same time, obviously, we know that she has called for hate speech laws many times. Do you think there's going to be some kind of a reckoning, some kind of change on her behalf, or is this just a totally schizophrenic in the sense of she wants to have her cake and eat it too? She doesn't. She she she's willing to decide what hate speech means by herself, 
uh, and yet she's confident enough that she will be in control of what's going to be defined as hate speech rather than being on the receiving end of it. Yeah, well, call me a cynic, but I think it's the latter. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the range of things that um, people can potentially be offended by and find hateful is, I mean, it could potentially be infinite, couldn't it? And the, the variability in that is huge. The, the things that offend me are obviously very different than the, the things that offend Chloe Swarbrick. So you can't, you can't really make law on uh, a subjective basis like hate, not a reasonable or fair law. All it's really going to do is to ensconce into uh, pair a particular person's uh, view. And if Chloe was in charge, I'm sure that's what she would do. She would she would make it hate speech to criticise the things that she holds dear. <laughs> yeah. And it would be total free speech to, to champion the causes that uh, she thinks are important and that other people find hateful. Um, exactly. I think... All of the listeners here would agree that Chloe should have the right to free speech and that it's important for her to be able to speak without uh, being uh, legal, you know, legally liable for hate speech on, on the issues that she cares about. Yet, uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see some kind of awakening from her on, on you know, how incoherent her beliefs are, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Now, the main reason uh, why I've invited you on the show here is that you've been quite vocal about immigration in New Zealand, specifically the issue of mass migration. The statistics that we saw last year were, I believe, the highest uh, number of immigrants that the country has received in a 12-month period. Uh, the, the raw numbers were basically a quarter of a million people, 250,000. Is that correct? Yeah. So if I just consult my crib notes here, I can give you the rundown of the numbers. So to the, the year ending November 2023, um, 249,500 migrant arrivals, 122,095 departures uh, for a net gain of 127,409. So for a country of 5 million, 250,000 almost arrivals, this is 5% of the population. Huge. Uh, it's, it's just huge. And over the last 20 years, the immigration into New Zealand has been running at about 100,000 people per year, 100,000 people per year for 20 years, mm -hmm. which is, you know, that's uh, roughly between 1% to 2% a net gain per annum. Now, it's a bit complicated because some people come in and other people leave, and oftentimes the people who come in are the ones who leave again uh, in short notice, it's difficult it, to, to say how much of your population uh, is immigrant population and how much is growing uh, based off these numbers. But a lot of countries uh, record the number of people in the country who are born outside the country, and that can be a useful number. But yeah, I mean, the numbers are just very large, and that's yeah, going to... You wanted to say something? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I believe the... Uh, usually the foreign-born population in New Zealand decided to being about a third or so born overseas, which includes anyone who's born overseas, including myself here. And, of course, we have many uh, uh, English immigrants, many New Zealanders even born overseas. So I don't know, I don't know what that total, you know, that, that total number is obviously just simply people born overseas. Yeah, yeah. Which is probably quite high for, for uh, many Western countries, uh, but obviously it's on the, it's on the climb. In, in many parts of the world that are receiving immigrants. And obviously uh, that number is going to be very low on uh, parts of the world, which are 
you know, exporting or, or you know, have, a, have a case of immigration with a lot of people leaving. Yeah, it's very high in Australia. So Australia is a country of uh, 26 million people approximately at the moment. And they've had roughly 500 new migrants per year every year for the last 10 years. Um, 30% of Australia's population were born overseas as of 2022. 30%. It's a huge number. Mm-hmm. Same as um, same as New Zealand, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, the UK is a pop- country of 67 million people. Their new arrivals have been 500,000 or above uh, since 2004. And uh, they're up over a million in the last couple of years. So uh, like Australia and New Zealand, that's running at above 1% of the population per year. Uh, The US is a bit hard to work out because so much of their immigration is illegal immigration. And they don't have very good statistics for that. But Yeah, it's a lot easier when you're an island nation to keep track of how many people are coming in. It's a little bit more difficult than uh, swimming over the Rio Grande as it is in America. Yeah. uh, Canada is a a similar story. A population of 39 million, uh, 200,000 to 500,000 people per year over the last 20 years. Uh, And then in Europe, we're obviously all familiar with the the stories that are coming out of there of the large uh, Muslim population that's immigrated in over the last few years so this this immigration it causes uh problems it causes both mm-hmm. um economic and uh social problems and it, the way this links to free speech is it's very hard to talk about these problems because as soon as you do out come the accusations of you know xenophobia and racism and all the rest of it and even if you make purely economic arguments but the i mean the economic argument against the large-scale immigration we've seen is simply that our housing stocks, our infrastructure stocks, and our public services are all stretched, and they can't deal with us. And this is something that's never really discussed in the public debate around immigration, but every immigrant who comes to New Zealand demands those things immediately. They need housing. They need you know infrastructure connected to the housing pipes and roads, and they need public services like healthcare and education almost immediately. But it takes time for those things to, uh, for the markets, for those things to adjust and for them to be supplied. It takes time to build a house. It takes time not just for the physical building, but for the getting the consent uh, and for all those things. It takes time to expand your public services. It takes time to develop your infrastructure. And what this means is that there's just there's natural limits to the amount of new immigrants a population of 5 million can uh, cater to and can provide for year on year. And if you exceed that natural limit, uh, as probably as we've been doing mm-hmm. for the last 20 years, you're going to end up with housing crisis and infrastructure deficits and stretched public services. And that would be the case even if we had the best supply-side solutions to these problems imaginable. No one ever talks about immigration as the cause of these problems. They only ever talk about, in the housing crisis, for example, every, the, the solution is always uh, supply. We've got to free up more supply build more we need to build more houses uh, yeah but even if we had the, even if we had the best yeah even if we had the best supply side in the world what i'm saying is there's still a natural limit and you can see this with a simple thought experiment like let's imagine we have the best supply side housing market in the world and 10 million people come here next year are we going to house them all what about 20 million what about 100 million obviously there's some sort of limit mm-hmm. yeah. and, no, and no one ever discusses it 
And even if you are seeing a net gain of 100,000 people in a year, being optimistic and saying those are all larger families, you're still needing tens of thousands, uh, maybe up to 50,000 houses per year that you're building purely to cater to immigration, not factoring in growing families here in New Zealand, uh, expanding population here in New Zealand. The argument you mentioned around economics is, in fact, one that we saw during the election campaign. So I've got a quote here from Christopher Luxon. Uh, during the campaign last year, said, and I quote, immigration's always got to be linked to our economic agenda, and our economic agenda says we need people. I mean, here's the deal. Essentially, New Zealand stopped replacing itself in 2016. I encourage all of you to go out there, have more babies if you wish. That would be helpful. And the implication here, of course, is either you will have children and replace yourself because the economic agenda of the National Party says the population has to grow. And if we don't naturally grow population, we don't have enough children in New Zealand, the fertility rate is not high enough, which at this point it's not. It's uh, well below replacement level, I believe about 1.5 children per woman. The National Party is saying we will use immigration to make sure the population keeps growing. Yeah. Well, is that really solving the problem? I mean, if uh, if you have an endangered species that's not replacing itself, no one suggests, oh, well, we'll, we'll bring in this other species, this other type of you know animal to replace them. Obviously, if a, a people in a culture are, are not replacing themselves, that's a public policy problem, and you should address the real problem rather than trying to cover it over by bringing in more people from elsewhere. So we need to ask ourselves, uh, why are people not having children anymore? This is something that people managed even when times were very tough uh, even in the stone age yeah, um there was you know life was much harder it's much harder to gather food much harder to keep warm um people still managed to have children why are we not doing it now there's some sort of failure in our society and we need to narrow in on exactly what it is and fix that rather than just bringing in more people because what sort of future are you really offering to new people if you bring them in and as a result of living in your society, they can no longer reproduce themselves either. Yeah. This is a civilization as death trap. And, and this actually often happens. For instance, I myself was involved very much in arguing against certain types of immigration, specifically saying, well, these people have very high birth rates and they'll end up replacing population and, and they'll grow and become a, a big threat. The example that you mentioned earlier on as well was Muslim immigration to Europe. Many people have argued over a long period of time saying, well, this could be very dangerous in the long term. And in some countries in Europe, it has become a very big issue for their domestic policy. But when you look at the numbers of children that they're having, they, that, that's decreased rapidly. Uh, the, the birth rates of many of these immigrants plummets to the same level as the native population. So clearly, whatever it is that's suppressing birth rates has got less to do with purely the economic situation uh, in, in, in the country, because you know that 100 years ago, when everyone was living in mud huts, they were having 10 kids. Uh, and so something something big has changed. And I don't think even the experts, the so-called experts on this issue, uh, which we do have some that appear on New Zealand in the mainstream media, uh, I believe Paul Spoonley at the moment is is one of these who's talking about immigration and population replacement and demographic change. Uh, he's talking about you know income problems and so on, but not really dealing with maybe a deeper issue that's getting in the way of people having children. Obviously, you do see certain demographics have higher birth rates, and there, there seems to be no real assessment wondering, okay, is this maybe 
a cultural thing that's been broken. Uh, as a good example, in New Zealand, Maori have a much higher birth rate and they have a far stronger cultural identity as well. Yet nobody in the mainstream seems to be willing to explore this issue that people's uh, cultural and religious identity is actually far more important than any of these material solutions they talk about. Well, I think there's something to that. I mean, I, I saw Paul Spoonley on the AM show the other day, and I think I don't think what he said was completely wrong. I think there's some um, there's a legitimate argument that, I mean, I think the factors he mentioned are were uh, female educational attainment, female employment. Those were the two main ones. I think there may have been mm-hmm. a couple of others. He mentioned basically money, but you know. Yeah, well, well, I think I mean, and so the basic argument there that an economist would make, and I think it's valid, is that if you've got a good job and you're earning lots of money, then you have to give up more of that to have a child. And so the trade-off for a professional woman as well, I mean, should I keep plugging away at my career where I'm doing quite well and earn lots of money and climb the corporate ladder? Or should I put that all on pause and risk my career to have children? And so it just creates a set of incentives which mean that you know, professional woman or working woman uh, may, on average, be less likely to want to take time out of the workforce to have children. So I think there is something to that, but there's also something to what you're saying. There's a deeper problem, a sort of spiritual malaise, a mm-hmm. crisis of uh, identity or meaning in in the modern world. And I think, you know, the modern world is better than the, the pre-modern world in probably mm-hmm. most ways. So I wouldn't want to go back. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> going back either. Uh, I know there's... But, I know but people... what I would say is in the pre-modern world, they didn't have a crisis of meaning like we have. The basic questions of why we were here, why we're here, what we're here to do, who's in charge, namely God, they were all answered for you. And everyone knew that from when they were born right throughout their lives. And we don't have that anymore. That Those questions are open to us modern people. We have to figure out the answers to them for ourselves. And so the, the question is, uh, is that situation working for us? And it's uh, debatable in my mind whether it is. And obviously, yeah, if everybody is simply treated as an economic unit through a matter of public policy, then you're never going to solve any of these problems because you want, just want to make economic units more productive. You want to have more economic units and it'll, it, it's a death spiral, right? That's, but if in, essentially, the public policy situation has got itself into a point where it can't naturally recover, uh, except the only solution it has right now is to bring in more immigrants, which at some point creates more problems. Um, yeah, I think there is something dehumanizing about considering human beings in purely an economic sense and considering, you know, the, the meaning and purpose or the, the main thing about human existence to be going to work, earning money, buying a house, providing for your children. I mean, those are all important things, but uh, in the past, we've uh, set our sights maybe a little bit higher or been a bit more idealistic or and more religious. And um, maybe there was something to that. You, you might be right about that. Now, we've been using the terms mass migration and we're talking about replacement migration, which is getting awfully and dangerously close to a term called the great replacement. And I've noticed that you are one of the few people who actually talks about this in terms of a great replacement, the, the scary the scary term. And I remember many years ago, I once you know made the mistake of being interviewed by a journalist, uh, which I much regret, but you know, you live and learn. And I was asked a similar question about uh, what do I think about the great replacement? And I said, well, I, I don't really talk about the great replacement. What does that 
what does it mean? I just, I, talk, I you know, I'm concerned about mass migration as, as a problem. So why do you mention it specifically and uh, what really is it and why is it considered such a scary thing? Well, I mean, I just personally don't like the idea of certain things being off limits to discussion. Uh, and so whenever I, you know, run into taboos around things you can't talk about, I like to sort of challenge them. And that's a lot of what I do with my Twitter account is sort of try to challenge these taboos around things that we can't say. So hopefully in my own small way, I'm sort of helping to bulldoze the way for other people to come in behind me and have these conversations um, like what we're doing now. But I mean, what the Great Replacement really is, is it's a name for the massive immigration-driven demographic changes that are happening in most majority white countries. In most historically European countries, we're seeing a process where the white population was well above 90% in the 1950s and is in freefall. And if unchecked, whites will become a minority in their own countries in the coming decades. So that's basically what I mean by the Great Replacement. Now, I've talked about white people and European people there, simply because they're the ones that this is happening to predominantly. Um, but there's no reason why a similar situation couldn't happen mm-hmm. in other countries and why it would also be problematic if it happened there. Yeah, precisely. I actually saw, saw a quote today from uh, Napoleon Bonaparte where he said, he cared about whites because he was white. Uh, that was so, for hundreds of years, people have used this term to basically look, you care most about the people who are closest to you, you care most about your own people, but it doesn't mean that this these problems can't affect uh, other people as well in other countries and other nations. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I'm a fan of the late uh, English philosopher, Sir Roger Scruton. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, the conservative instinct starts from people loving what they see around them and valuing it and seeking to protect it. And that's basically the starting point for my political thinking as well. You know, we've got a good thing going here in New Zealand and in the West, mm-hmm. you know, the West. And it's it's worth protecting, you know. Now, a common argument from liberals, and I guess why they've created the bogeyman of the Great Replacement is, means that you're scary, is that they see people seeking their own nationalism, their own ethnic affinity, mm-hmm. uh, even arguing that any country has a right to have an ethnic majority of its own people. They argue that is, uh, is something that's very dangerous because it's what caused World War II. And so by speaking against mass migration, by speaking against the Great Replacement, you're effectively putting yourself out there as, as being a threat because you could cause another world war, you could cause another genocide somehow, you could cause nationalism of the bad sort to rise again. Yeah. Well, in many ways, Hitler wasn't a nationalist, actually. He was an imperialist because he sought to conquer other countries. There is no inherent reason why uh, nationalism has to be violent, and most nationalisms have not really been violent in the past. So I think we, we all li- we're living in the shadow of uh, World War II and Adolf Hitler, and it was a huge you know, historic event, and it's left sort of a, a lasting mark on the psychology of, if not all the world's people, certainly the people of the Western world, and I'm not sure all the correct conclusions have been drawn as a result of that. You know, the uh, the great totalitarianisms of the 20th century, of them there was Nazism and uh, communism, right? And a lot of people died because of communism too, and it wasn't necessarily a nationalistic sort of ideology. So I don't, I don't think we can blame nationalism necessarily for the deaths. 
And communism, as you've just mentioned, is hardly considered to be as dirty of a word, at least among you know the so-called respectable classes of society. They, uh, whether it's the mainstream media or politicians and and so on, academia, being called a communist is actually not particularly harmful, as it may be uh, if you're called a nationalist, that may harm your academic prospects. No, well, it shows you that that mean um, popular sort of elite opinion. Although it poses as, you know, trying to be uh, for peace and against violence, and uh, that's not really what's going on. They have their own ideas about what's good, and the people who they support have committed a, a lot of genocides of their own. So uh, I don't think we need to take our lead from them necessarily. I mean, who, who I take my lead from in terms of nationalism is a uh, Israeli political philosopher called Yoram Hazoni, who wrote a book, um, The Virtue of Nationalism. Which I think is a very good book. It's a great book. Yeah, I should I should review it on the show sometime. Yeah, and, and he he defines nationalism simply as you know it's a political philosophy of that the world is governed better when it's governed by a set of uh, sovereign independent nations rather than other systems such as a one world government or empires or something of that sort. And so that's basically my philosophy. If you've just tuned into the show, you're listening to The Dialogue on Reality Check Radio with Diwa De Boer, where we explore politics, power, and culture. And right now, we are talking with William McGimsey, who's a public policy professional, and we've discussed the effects of mass migration, uh, freedom of speech versus hate speech. We've also talked a little bit about the the great replacement as a term for uh, the effects of mass migration and also the uh, we were just discussing the virtues of nationalism so on, on to say roughly on the same subject um do we have many historical precedents for what happens at very high levels of immigration uh, or are we in uncharted waters um well there's nothing exactly like what is happening now and uh, that should really be give pause to the people who are championing the policy, right? <laughs> is this, is this evidence-based policy? Uh, I think not. Uh, I think what's going on here is, on behalf of some of the people championing it, an idealistic crusade, you know, uh, which maybe arguably grew out of, uh, you know, John Lennon and the hippie movement, trying to, you know, unite the world, bring us all together, that's part of what's driving it. But that's not evidence-based policy. That, that's pure idealism. And pure idealism like that can be dangerous, particularly when it uh, sort of uh, demonizes those who oppose it and refuses to listen to arguments for the bad things that it might be causing. And that's where we are with that. But I think another thing that's driving this is just the demand of big businesses for a, a large pool of cheap labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we're sort of stuck in this uh, pincer where we've got people on the left uh, wanting this in part because they think they can assemble, you know, uh, demographic majorities to win elections. A lot of the left-wing parties in Western countries now, they organise themselves by like a coalition of the fringes and they think the more of these sort of minority groups they can bring in, the bigger they can make their coalition of the fringes and the more they can get their way uh, so that's part of what's driving it and then on the right you've got this desire for cheap labor a desire to turn a country just into a pure economic zone a market mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so we're in this situation where both sides want this and it's happening. But is it good for ordinary people? Is it in the interests of the ordinary people in these countries? I'm not so sure that it is. You've mentioned that both sides of the aisle support this very much. But sometimes when they're in opposition, they don't. So it's clearly, as you've mentioned, there is a populist undercurrent that is opposed to this. The people themselves don't like it. Whenever it's whenever there's polling done on, the, on it, and I, I don't know the figures exactly for New Zealand, but I know that in America, for instance, it's 70% opposed to their immigration policies. It's probably very similar to New Zealand. Um, but when parties are in opposition, like the Labour Party has been very much anti-immigration, you know, to the point where it was mocked by the National Party for being anti-immigration. Uh, and that was only maybe, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, perhaps even less. Even six years ago, the National Party was opposed to immigration. Right? They uh, even ran a petition against the United Nations Migration Compact. And so when they're in opposition, there seems to be some nods to this. But getting policy out of it is very, very difficult. Uh, you know, we have we've discussed the problems. What are the solutions? Even parties uh, in New Zealand who have argued against immigration, New Zealand First is perhaps a good example, doesn't seem to be trying to implement policies to, to reduce immigration. And, and, and I'm not just talking as a one-off. I'm talking a structural reform that would stay in place long term. There's no real movement towards a structural change in our immigration policy and what do you think? Is it possible to, to have that change happen? Is the electorate going to be able to mobilise in some way to make that happen? Well, I think it is. I mean, I think as the problems associated with it become more and more apparent as they are, you're seeing the populist pushback become larger and larger and more powerful and that being reflected in voting decisions. I think I was browsing Twitter today and I saw that uh, polling puts Marine Le Pen as the, she would win an election <laughs> was held today in France. And it's the same thing all over Europe, and it's the same thing happening in Anglosphere countries. Donald Trump won in 2016 based largely on the fact that he was willing to talk about immigration and promise to do something about it when, when no one else was willing to even mention it. And he's likely going to win again. I mean, we don't know for sure, precisely because he's going to run on that issue. That's one of the biggest issues. And, you know, Nigel Farage is making big strides in the UK because he's willing to talk about the immigration issue where not very many other people are. So I think part of the problem here is that in, there's a sort of structural problem with pluralistic democracies. In pluralistic democracies, uh, minority groups are much more motivated to organise to defend their interests, right? Because they, they have to really elbow their way in to get their way on things that are really important to them. And for a long time, the majority has just been sort of complacent. But now that the majority is being uh, threatened, by these immigration policies. I think they're starting to organise across Western countries, you know, through uh, organising various types of lobby groups and other organisations, getting active on social media, voting in politicians and parties who are willing to talk about and do something about these issues. So, I mean, as the problem grows, the reaction will grow too. And hopefully uh, that'll result in more of these politicians being elected and doing something about it. I think you can already see it's happening, Joey. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I can. Don't, don't give up hope. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not giving up hope. I'm, I'm just, I'm here to ask the questions and facilitate these conversations. And, and yeah, I, I liked what you were saying there about the uh, sort of a power in a pluralistic democracy, like I was lying largely with vocal minorities. I think few people really understand that the silent majority doesn't 
get anywhere. It doesn't, doesn't get what it wants. It's the vocal minority that gets what it wants. So being able to put together a vocal minority within the majority is, is really a, a, a path to actual political power and change. That's right. And I think, yeah, and like I say, the more these problems uh, manifest themselves, the, the more motivated people are going to be to build organizations that uh, can project power in a, you know, in a peaceful, democratic way within our democracies and elect these sorts of politicians and get these policies passed. And we've been talking mostly about ethnic uh, ethnic majorities, especially Europeans you know, in, in our context, but obviously... For immigrants, this becomes an important issue too. Uh, I'm an immigrant here myself. I know very many other immigrants who really care about this issue because you move to a country and then you, you want the country to succeed and you don't want it to, to, to fail and fall over and, and decay and, and decline. So this is an issue that does or has always really spoken to me because I don't want our immigration policy to be the downfall of the country. And really, you know, as we've mentioned earlier, obviously, there is a, a natural small amount of immigration, a reasonable amount of immigration, which a country can absorb well over time and people can assimilate and be given a chance to assimilate. And if you take that away, uh, you undermine the, the, the very thing that makes this, this society stable, that makes people want to be part of it. Yeah, well, part of the thing that people like and value about their countries is the, the national identity and the culture of the country itself. Different countries have different cultures and different ways of life, and different people enjoy different things about different countries and different peoples and different ways of life. And so because you value these things, you want to preserve them, and that all seems perfectly natural and perfectly good to me. And one of the one of the problems that gets in the way of this is the accusations of racism and you know nativism and xenophobia that are thrown at people who express these very basic and widely shared and perfectly natural and perfectly good and perfectly healthy opinions that they love their country, they love their their culture and their way of life, they value it and they want to preserve it. If you say that, you're a racist. But there's nothing bad about that. That, that is actually the foundation of all positive civic engagement and political engagement in society. It's a love of country and I wish to do something about it and protect it. <laughs> and we've got people in the media, people in academia, people in the government who say that's an evil motivation. That's racism. Well, they're wrong. Mm -hmm. That's a great way to say it. They are wrong. Absolutely. I've got one last topic here for you, and that is something that's fairly unique to New Zealand, and that is what part do Maori play in this? Uh, what effect does you know, mass migration have on them and on their future and their goals, which currently are a subject of much debate in, in, in the news and various issues that, you know, they argue that the uh, David Seymour in particular has it out for them. But obviously there are other problems that are not being talked about so much, which is this issue. And I saw last week Shane Jones being interviewed saying that he's horrified by mass migration. That's the first time I've at least heard a New Zealand politician say this, which was Shane Jones from New Zealand first saying that he's horrified by mass migration. And he also mentioned that there's no hapu that wants to stand with him on this issue. And he says he wants to work with them on this issue and they're not interested. At the same time, they argue that it's colonization that's harmed them, yet somehow they don't make a connection between mass migration as being another form of colonization. Is this just a blind spot for them or do you think there's something more to it? No, well, I mean, I think the part of the calculation there is that they think that 
uh, they can ally with these ethnic minorities once they come into the country and it will increase their power against the um, the majority of the population. Um, I'm not sure that that's correct. I mean, in a democracy, ultimately what matters is numbers. And as your numbers decline, as large numbers of immigrants come in, you're going to find it more and more difficult to uh, elect uh, politicians and get policies across the line that reflect your interests and that defend your uh, values uh, as a people. And not only is it harder just in terms of the raw numbers, but the number of different minority interests that are competing to get their preferences recognised in policy increases. And so, I mean, I think Shane Jones is right. He said something along the lines of, uh, if Maori think they're marginalised now, imagine how they're going to feel in uh, 2040 when there's 7 million uh, people in New Zealand. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) But there's another angle to this as well, and this is one that I... Uh, so brought up by by Paul Spoonley in his recent media appearances, where he mentioned that Maori have a much younger demographic face. They are going to increase as a share of the population to about twenty percent or so by then, at least the, the number of people who identify uh, in that way, uh, which is actually important. A lot of people say, "Well, the, you know, you don't have enough DNA," and and but it's actually the way that people identify themselves becomes very important in a political measurement. So you do they, they are demographically strong and young in terms of, of having having higher birth rates, having an increasing population. They're going to want to demand more of of their own ethnic interests as well as that happens. And of course, people who may be worried about a growing Maori ethnic interest in New Zealand may also now not like our arguments against mass migration because obviously that would also strengthen uh, Maori interests going into the future. Do you do you see this having a big well, I mean, I think it must have a big impact on the future. Is this something people should be worried about or is it a case of us simply waiting to see what happens? No, I mean, I'm of the view that uh, immigration, high rates of immigration will ultimately disempower rather than empower Mary mm-hmm. for the reasons that we've discussed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. Even if they are slightly larger percentage of the population. A, a, large, yeah, but a, a lot of that reason people are identifying as Mary is because of intermarriage and stuff like that. Uh, and so it's not like the amount of married genes in the population are really increasing greatly. Mm-hmm. It's just the, the the spread is increasing. So that the number of people who could potentially identify as married is being spread more and more thinly yeah, <laughs> among yeah. Young people. So, uh, yeah. We do have uh, examples. I, I can actually go and back to my own uh, ethnic heritage here. Um, people often wonder why my name is so funny, and it's because it's actually a Frisian name. The Frisians are an ethnic minority in, in the Netherlands. They're actually split between two countries. A percentage of Frisians live in the north of the Netherlands and a percentage live in the west of, of Germany along the coast. But the original people who were the Frisi largely died out. Their genes are almost non-existent. You know, there's a small percentage of, of that original group. But the identity was picked up by the people who moved into the area, like I'm talking a thousand years ago. So it's possible for populations to basically you know, adopt an identity, even though the genetic code becomes very diluted. That identity can still remain very strong, like a thousand years later in, in my own case. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's correct. I mean, the, the trappings remain, but the, 
the substance is <laughs> not well, the, the obviously over a long time scales uh, so anything can happen right so we we can't plan we can't plan a thousand years ahead obviously all right well is there anything else that you'd like to tell the audience uh, you know a key thing you'd like them to remember as we draw to a close here uh, no, just follow me on Twitter. Um, if you're interested in uh, free speech, if you're interested in uh, immigration, if you're interested in the right to uh, self-determination, which is the right of the people to govern themselves, if you're interested in defending other human rights, follow me on Twitter and uh, follow the conversation, uh, join in. And I think that participating in uh, social media is something that everyone can do. And it's, it is something that if enough people do, it can have an effect on the national political conversation. And I think that we're seeing that it is having an effect on the national political conversation. So I would just encourage everyone at home to join in, take part in the political debate, and uh, don't let the people trying to censor you put you off. Uh, challenge them, because uh, if you do it enough, it actually starts being fun. Well, thank you very much. Uh, people, you can find... William McGimsey on Twitter, just search for his name, or The Zeitgeist, which is his, his handle, and you'll find him, and you will enjoy his content. It'll make you think. It certainly has made me think in the last few years. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, we both wish all people the best in, uh, in you know, determining uh, the future of their people, especially I'm you know, very, very interested and very much looking forward to how New Zealand develops with the identity of New Zealanders and also Maori identity and uh, their autonomy, which you know, they find very, very important uh, in the same way that New Zealanders are finding their own autonomy and, and their own identity as a people increasingly important. We've just gone over the issue of mass migration here. We've covered the issues of uh, nationalism, the great replacement, uh, ethnic identity and freedom of speech. That's a lot of ground that we've covered. I hope people have really enjoyed it and uh, we will be back after the break with more. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to or dislike what you're listening to, either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so connect with us today.